sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it is Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. It's your home for rumor, innuendo, and all the things you wanted to know about rock and roll. We are the story guys at gmail.com, and we've got a letter from Brad. Brad from Ohio. The Ohio, up, the Ohio Hive is pretty active. I feel like we have a lot of Ohio energy on this podcast, which is great. Um, I was in Ohio very recently to see the Pixies. It was nice. Um, Thank you for hosting me, Ohio. Anyway, Brad. uh, Hi, guys. I came across a brief paragraph in an article recently saying that Phil Linnett of Thin Lizzy, a band that I saw back in 1979. First, can we stop and say that these are my people? Because, like, first... Yeah, Brad, really? I want to <laughs> hug you and wish you were here because we never saw Thin Lizzy. We never man. saw Thin Lizzy. And it's just, it, that's how you and I talk, right? Like, if you if you said, hey, man, have you heard that new single from Queens of the Stone Age? I would say to you, dude, I saw Queens of the Stone Age play the Palace once. Like, that's just what I would say. And it's, like, sort of annoying when I, like, think about it. Like, I'm like, I bet that really annoys some people. But... No, it does not annoy us because this is the vibe. And so yeah. you understand that. I, I, I have a lot of questions, Brad, about you getting to see F- Phil Lennon in 79 and how he was mentally, especially after we get through this episode. You understand why I want to ask those questions? Anyway, let me finish reading this. Uh, so I saw an article recently saying that Phil Lennon of Thin Lizzy once tricked Bob Geldof into doing heroin. There is a lot to unpack in that sentence. Wow, that's... That that is. It reminds me of the story that uh, uh, Chino from the Deftones told about uh, Mike Patton from Faith No More getting him so hammered that it made it incredibly difficult for him to perform. That show is on YouTube. Let's go back <laughs> to the letter from Brad. Well, he says, I'm just hoping you could do your thing, which I also love that he calls it that. I hope you could do your thing and provide a little deeper insight. Thanks for all you do for music geeks like me. And let me just tell you, Brad, we do it for ourselves because we're music geeks like you. Um, I it's seem that thing. It's that thing that you do. Oh, right. don't stop it. Um, I, I seem to remember that you have a not hot take on thin Lizzy. Do we disagree on thin Lizzy? Nah, you're fucking amazing. Oh, okay. Like, Why did I, I think that you didn't like thin Lizzy? Nah, nah, nah. there's a, the, uh, if I, I don't know if people know, there's a band that, that was together called the biters and oh. the lead singer broke off and his name's Tuck Smith. He's in Nashville and he has amazing story, but there's YouTube clips of him where he jokes and he's like, people tell me that we, I'm just ripping off thin Lizzie. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. And there's one time he goes, I know what the fuck I'm doing. And then the song starts and it's like, yeah, this is thin Lizzie. There, there's like something universally awesome about. I, I adore them, but though when I started to write this, I, I realized I needed to back that statement up a little bit because really I adore to be. If I'm being honest, because we're among friends here, I adore Jailbreak. I, I was actually shocked when doing the research to find out that that was album six of eleven. I would have guessed yeah. like three of four. Uh, that's Uh-oh. album six of eleven. They're huge amount of output. Yeah, yeah. And and so for me, the that was the record that was on like the album rock radio when I was a kid. So I just heard Jailbreak and the boys are back in town. And then Cowboy Song, which they played some too, which was interesting. And, and I my gateway was just Jailbreak before I, I started listening to the other ones. And they were kind of hit or miss sometimes. There were records I like better than others, but um 
Hell yeah. So you know there is a venue in town that is a rock and roll stage and an art gallery. And I, I don't know if it's still there, but I'm almost positive. I've sent you a picture of this, probably drunkenly. Uh, for a while, they had a giant, giant painting of Phil Lennon in this space. Have I sent you photos of this? Maybe. Okay, I, I need to go so. back through my phone. It's in the back. Okay, I, so I got to be friendly with folks from there, and I asked one of them how much it was. And they were like, oh, that's not for sale. But let me talk to the artist. And so I'm like, oh, shit. Now they're going to go ask this person. And I'm like, there's no way I'm going to be able to afford it. I mean, dude, it is. I don't think it would fit in my house. It's huge. And, and so <laughs> they came back to me, and they were like, okay, it's not for sale. But. He says he'd do another one for, and I like I erased. I just quit listening when they gave me the prize because I knew it was something I would never afford. But let me just use this as an excuse to say, join our Patreon, Patreon.com/slash Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Patreon, <laughs> you can buy Patreon. the studio a giant painting of Phil Linnet. It would be great if you'd like to make our dreams come true, which will just make <laughs> us more enthusiastic to do more goofy, crazy music shit Dude, like we do all the I time. if I could sit under a picture of Phil Linnett every time we record, not a f- picture, a fucking monument to Phil Linnett, uh, it would be great. I So I'm sure I've told this before about my friend Chris. Every time I think about Thin Lizzy, I think of my buddy CB, Chris Baker. Uh, Chris Baker and I worked in radio together. I was really young. He's probably five to ten years older than me. And he was a little bit of a mentor, big brother for me. And we shared an office space. And we would listen to Thin Lizzy. And I honestly think he probably sort of got me into Thin Lizzy to some degree. And I and we would mess with our, our GM, who was hard of hearing. And we would throw lyrics to Jailbreak back and forth to each other as like sort of a conversation in front of Jay to see if Jay could hear us. Uh, so, I mean, I have a lot of, I have a lot of fond memories, but what is like, what's your favorite song on jailbreak? Oh, it's cowboy song. Easy. Yeah. I mean, it cowboy songs really good. And I was re-listening to it while writing this. I was listening to a bunch of stuff in their catalog, but I was re-listening to most of jailbreak and the, I think a few years ago they put out the expanded edition or whatever. And so there's demos, mm-hmm. and like there's all sorts of versions of everything. Um, but Cowboy Song, I forget, like it starts with him singing. I am just a yeah. cowboy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's real slow. Yeah. And then it has that kind of that, that in between sort of thing before it goes into the chorus, which sounds like the, I mean, it's not the, it's not the chorus. It's, it's the verse. But it feels like it's a chorus, right. like you're jumping right. into the chorus because it's so it, it's real loud and so my my bombastic and fun. My favorite song on that record is "Running Back." <laughs> nice. I, it, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't peg that as like my favorite one. That's interesting. That's so here I I actually read something at some point in the research and I don't remember where it was. Looking for it. Hold on. I, but this this guy said it. I guess in Ireland, which we're going to get to the whole Ireland part because that's a big part of the story. But at some point, running back was used in a bread advertisement. And he was like, Phil Linnett was so cool that it made the bread cool. Like the advertising worked. Like no one was mad that they used that song in a bread commercial because that's how cool Phil Linnett was. And he's just one of a kind, right? Like granted, black dude playing bass in front of a quote unquote hard rock band in the 70s makes him a bit of a unicorn but all that aside there is still this matter of his singing style and his delivery um but you know the the story on running back which i find really interesting too that i ran across is that they were trying to write a hit so this was one of those cases where they were like there's not a hit and so they were they literally were like 
I'm going to try to make a song that sounds like Van Morrison. And I never thought about that, but if you go listen to Running Back with that in mind, I'm like... I've never thought about Oh, holy shit, that does sound like Van Morrison. I mean, they even brought in like somebody from outside the band to, to play something that they couldn't play. They brought in a studio musician. It was a whole thing. But let's go back to where you started to go. Let's talk about the Irish thing. Well, it, it's that's the thing that people don't know. They're probably like, boys are back in town's fucking awesome yeah, song. Those boys and must like, be from Georgia. Yeah, no, they're right, not. And there is so much more here. Well, yeah, it, it's the interesting part. It might be the most interesting part. And, you know, I, I think if, if if there's people listening and they feel like I did, which is like, oh, my God, they had this many albums out and I only know Jailbreak. That's because you're American. Like the, the Jailbreak is their breakout album in America. So that's the thing to remember is that there are other things going on, but it, you know, and we won't get into this too much. But as we start to talk about their relationship to drugs, one thing to know is that they sort of torch themselves in America because once Jailbreak comes out, they're falling apart enough as a band that they're not very good at supporting it in the U.S. And there's several cancellations and. There's a member that they they lose him in the middle of the tour. He quits the tour, and they have to cancel dates. So, like, they're not a reliable uh, mode of of money to concert promoters in America. So they get sort of black, like not officially, but like sort of unofficially blacklisted out of America. And so their career in America and their relationship with America is a little different. Though it was something they always wanted. Phil always wanted the big American hit, and he finally gets it six albums in. But yeah. Okay, so there's a link in the show notes to a thesis written by a woman named JCL Thomas at Georgia Southern University in 2021. Yes. Shouts yes, to her. I know this is funny that I, this is not the first time this has happened on the show. Sometimes there are some really good uh, uh, papers written at the collegiate level or the doctorate level that we need to reference. But, but none of them are this hot. <laughs> it's called it's I- this thesis. Irish music amid a time of troubles. Thin Lizzy and U2 as a bridge during times of division. This, we've talked about the Irish troubles on the show before, right? That's right. And if you don't know this, we did a freaking whole episode called Charlie Pride versus <laughs> the Northern Ireland conflict. I'm proud of that episode. We, we do everything <laughs> see he's the artist that broke the touring band so people couldn't really yeah. play in ireland and he was the first one to do it remind us a little bit about what the hell the troubles were um well yeah i mean jace uh thesis really does the <laughs> heavy lifting so here's let me, i'll read the first paragraph of the abstract of this hot super thesis <laughs> the troubles were a period of crisis and violence in ireland in the later half of the 20th century loyalist unions unionist Republicans and nationalists brutally (laughs) fought against each other over the issue of whether or not Northern Ireland should remain in the UK or join the Republic of Ireland to form one united country. The conflict resulted in ethnic and religious tensions for Protestants and Catholics who were compelled to choose a side over the issue, owing to their ties to the deep-rooted history of animosity between those two Christian populations. Yeah, JC's great. Uh, And they lasted a really long time. Like, roughly, they're considered to have been from the late 60s to the late 90s. So this paper explains that the emergence of rock and roll that happens across the world in the 60s takes on this different significance in Ireland, partly because it's a coping mechanism. But there's a few things that make Thin Lizzy even more significant. And part of that is Phil. Phil Lennon. Yes. 
I mean, because his mom was Irish and his dad was from British Guiana, so he was biracial. And anything you read about this band, everyone that like knew him as a kid's like uh, the one black kid, like in Ireland, <laughs> like yeah. especially in their neighborhood. But like really, like there were just not a lot of black people. Um, and so he was biracial. He was in a rock band in Ireland during a time when people were literally killing each other over being different or not being just one thing. And he was all of these things, right? Yeah. And as JC, did I mention the thesis is gorgeous and hot? As JC <laughs> put in her thesis, Thin Lizzy just by existing as a band was a political statement. Let me go a little bit deeper on that. So in the original formation of the band, you have Phil and you have the drummer Brian Downey and you have a guy named Eric Bell who plays guitar and a guy named Eric Wixton, Rickson who plays keyboard. Now, Phil and Brian are both from the same area of Dublin that is very Catholic. The Erics are from a Protestant neighborhood in Belfast. They're literally supposed to be enemies. That's the whole plan. So the very idea that these guys are cooperating on anything before a single note is even played is literally is literally revolutionary. Yeah, and there's another great, great quote, and this is from a journalist named Graeme Thompson. Graham Thompson. So Gra- Graham Thompson Graham. wrote a book or two specifically on Phil. He's kind of known unofficially as Phil's biographer. Okay. Um, it's Graham, and not, I'm looking at his name. I'm like, Graeme? Um, <laughs> so he said, um, Thin Lizzy were, quote, questioning the orthodoxies of the time with every show they played and every song that they wrote. But but you got to back up, though, because how the hell does a black Irish dude even get himself into this position as a musician in a country that is in so much turmoil? It just feels like there would be bigger fish to fry, different focuses for kids to be pushed towards. Right. So it, it starts with him like it starts with most. There's an older family member. For me, it was my sister who left all this crap when she went to college. For <laughs> Phil, it was his uncle. His uncle Timothy had Motown and Mamas and Papas. Oh, right so, on. So by the time he's a teenager, Phil's in cover bands. Did you know, like there's other bands who had to change their name for some reason. They just decided to change it. He was in a band called Skid Row at one point. <laughs> he was. There was no monkey, monkey business going on. And he gets kicked out eventually because the other founder thinks he is not a good enough singer really? but the guy feels bad about it yeah right and so he teaches phil how to play bass and that's how phil gets an instrument to play well i remember as a teenage bass player who i probably talked about this before was like the third or fourth guitarist in a band and everyone was like bro we don't have a bass player and you suck so you should learn to play the bass you're, you're the least talented guitar player that was the diplomatic way it was put to me sure uh that's me and, and so i was Dude. always interested in frontman that played bass because I thought that that was pretty difficult and I did it as a teenager very poorly. Um, and so, you know, there's Sting, of course. And then someone showed me there's a badass motherfucker with a fro playing yeah. and, and looking cool. I mean, and anything you read about Phil, and we've already mentioned this, right? But he just looked cool as fuck all the time. Like, just yeah. look up any picture of Phil Linnett. He looks cool. I heard a conversation on another podcast recently about like how you define cool. And I'm like, Phil in it. That's it. Uh, yeah. But the, you know, Phil is now considered this really revelatory front man. But when he starts thin Lizzie, he's not that natural of a front guy. 
and they get their first break really early on a tour with Slade. Shouts to Slade. And there's a story of Slade's manager getting in a fight with Phil one night because he's like, you've got to start doing something on stage and not just standing there. And and this will change the history of the band because when the when the core team comes in in the early 70s, the who become sort of known as the classic lineup, those guys, I read an interview with them and they're like, when we started, like our first night, Phil had to pull me to the front of the stage and tell me to like, get up here and get involved and they were just like running circles around the stage right like he they were just an amazing band to watch because of their energy yeah and another irish thing that these guys did is this song that becomes a hit for them which metallica has been playing for a long time and it's now like in the later later part of their sets and that's whiskey in the jar yeah so this is an irish folk song turned into a fucking rock song like i don't think i realized it was an irish folk song can you think of another folk song? This was turned into a rock, a rock song or a rock hit. Another folk song turned into it, like so, not like "Blowing in the Wind." Like Dylan, "Blowing in the Wind" is no, still folky. that's a folk song. But you're talking about something that turned into. I mean, I guess the only thing I could get close to is "House of the Rising Sun." Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. But it doesn't. That doesn't that, rock like whiskey. No, no, no. But did you know that comes from coal miners and a lot of that history points to Eastern Kentucky? What really, yeah. dude? That's fucking yeah. dope. I'll own that. Yeah. Uh, so it, back to Thin Lizzy. <laughs> we'll do another show on the animals. Uh, so once they get some tracking with their folk song, uh, Thin Lizzy do what bands in this period do. And we talk about this all the time, right? They just put out a tremendous amount of content. Uh, there is. Let me just run down this list. Thin Lizzy, self-titled, 71. Shades of Blue Orphanage, 72. Vagabonds of the Western World, 73. See the pattern? Nightlife, 74. Fighting, 75. Jailbreak, 76. That's your sixth fucking record in, in five years. Uh, Johnny the Fox is in 76 as well. Bad Reputations in 77. Black Rose, mm-hmm. 79. Chinatown, 80. Renegade, 81. Thunder and Lightning, 83. And there's another aspect of this band we haven't talked about yet. And they make this maneuver a few records in into that discography that you just read to employ a second lead guitarist. Oh, and I mentioned yeah. earlier at the top top of the show that band uh, Biters and Tuck Smith, like they had a second guitar player and they would open songs where him and the lead guitar player would play their the, the, would play the exact same melody, the same notes until like, the verse starts and then the guitar solo would have the lead guitar player playing the guitar solo. And then the singer would join in and they would play the exact same like notes all the way until it go back into the chorus, like ripping off then Lizzie 100% completed, you know, like completely ripping it off, but it sounds great. So right. Are, are they, are they like we, the first to do that? Well, like priest and maiden and Def Leppard all did that. But the the signature sound that made those solos sound huge was doubling up the live guitars, like what I was saying. Yeah, so this is a really good thing to bring up because I think that's probably what drew me to Jailbreak is how alive it sounds. Like, 
I'll, I talk about the handful of records that I heard maybe 20 years after they came out that really resonated because they didn't sound old to me, right? Like, I, I often talk yeah. about the cars, hearing the cars for the first time and being like, wait a second, when did, who? When did that band? Like, did, this is from 82 or whatever, you know? Um, and then, of course, Boston, who we've talked about at Nazim on this show and how much that record just Oh, still sounds so good. And, you know, that's Tom Schultz. We've talked about that at length. But Thin Lizzy would be on that list for me. That layered double guitar is a huge part of that. By the way, Cars, bass player, singer. Um, Ooh, so, yeah, good. Oh, that's a good connection. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. So um, the Irish Times published a history of the band where they got surviving members of the band to explain how this harmonized guitar sound developed. And there are two versions of the story. <laughs> of course. So, of course, because the rumor innuendo, who, what's really the truth. So both say the guitarist Eric Bell drunkenly walked off stage in Belfast one night in 73 in the middle of a set and never to return to the band. Isn't that crazy? Version, like, I, I, like yeah. I guess like he was having some shit going down in his life and he just was like... Like, there's one thing to walk out of a job. Have you, ever, have you ever worked with someone who just walked off the job? Have you ever had that happen where the guy next to you just gets up and closes his laptop or picks up his tools and leaves? Yep. Yeah, me too. And it was jarring. It was it was in that office that Chris and I were listening to Thin Lizzy in. There was a third guy for a while. He wasn't there. One day he just packed up and left. But anyway, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> Phil said he's never going to get bamboozled by a guitarist leaving him again, so he gets a backup. And this so he is just, why they're... He's like, I'm getting two lead guitar players, so if one of them doesn't show up for work, I got another one. I like... Yeah, it's like... I choose that version. It's like, I, I don't want there to be a bomb on this plane, so I'm going to bring a bomb, because the odds of there being two bombs are smaller. That's <laughs> what I, the analogy I was using. It's so fucking weird. Okay, the, the other version says that he saw it as a business move. So this guy, Scott Gorman, was from California, and he thought having an American in the band would make it easier to become successful in the U.S. So either way, Brian Robertson will teach Scott how to harmonize solos with him, and that sound will define that band. Oh, my God, dude. So that's really interesting. And that, you know, that note about Scott Gorman's interesting because this goes back to this narrative that I've already alluded to about Phil as successful as he is in Ireland and other parts of the world really wants to be successful in the U S. So they do, they bring this guy in who becomes a part of that core lineup who is an American. So we, we've covered a lot of things that are going to define this band, right? Phil is a black bass player. The band is a product of the trouble. Scott and Brian is dual lead guitar players, as you just laid out. But there is another thing that will start to define the story of this band. And that thing, it's the drugs. And that gets us to the business at hand. That's the letter we got from Brad. Louder Than Life, the biggest rock festival in America, is back with the loudest lineup ever. Foo Fighters. Green Day. Tool. Avenged Sevenfold. Godsmack. Pantera. Queens of the Stone Age. Biscuit. Bowling, 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 bow
Plus, Weezer, Megadeth, Turnstile, Rancid, Falling in Reverse, 311, Pierce the Veil, Run the Jewels, Corey Taylor, Coheed and Cambria, and so many more. 100 bands over four days in Louisville, Kentucky, September 21st through the 24th. Get your passes on sale now at LouderThanLifeFestival.com. Foo Fighters, Green Day, Tool, Avenged Sevenfold, Godsmack, and more. The biggest rock festival in America. Louder Than Life. In the uh, Behind the Laughter Simpsons episode, I always love Homer's quote where he goes, the worst thing about the drugs was the drugs. (laughs) (laughs) So so there's there's quite a few Phil Lynott drug stories that have become legend, right? For for sure. The the question first becomes, where did the drugs start for Phil, right? And there's a lot of lore around that alone. Uh, Producer Tony Viscotti, a name that has definitely come up on this show before, uh, he says that Phil once told him that Phil's mom gave him weed as a young teenager, and that was his his first entrance, 13 or something. Uh, There's stories that put him using drugs of some sort pretty intensely before he ever left the band Skid Row, who we already mentioned. Uh, There's like this one thing in passing that comes up about him being really, really, really high and talking to teddy bears on wallpaper, thinking they were real. Um, have you ever done that? Did you ever get high enough to think that an inanimate object was real? No, but I'm going to tell this story because it's so good. <laughs> um, I was, I was in college and we had kind of lost somebody. You know, you're hanging out. Um, and there are a couple people that had taken LSD and we had lost one of them. And there was this thing and like, I didn't take LSD, but this thing that I learned was that you could eat tang or people thought that if you ate tang, you would like make you trip longer. Yeah. I've always so, heard that. That is weird. Why okay. do I know that? That's weird. I don't know. Um, so we found him in a closet <laughs> with, with a big thing of tang and a spoon but he was talking to the tang like thing oh man oh good lord the worst part of the drugs was the tang <laughs> the worst part of the drugs <laughs> oh my god okay okay, okay. so the the drug that, the drug that comes to define this band though is not marijuana it it, it is no, heroin it's 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 heroin. heroin okay so before we get to this great question we got from Brad should we do you want to be the person that tells people who Bob Geldof is well I mean we don't know who Bob Geldof of, is a lot of coverage of this guy early in the show's history his tangle with NXS and then yep. of course his role in Band Aid but uh, yeah. why don't you actually break down the larger context of who he is okay okay so. First, like Phil, he's Irish, and <laughs> he's in a band long before Live Aid, Band Aid, or any of that shit. Called, and it was called the Boomtown Rats. Uh huh. Um, so whenever you are talking just very surface level about Irish bands in the seventies, seventies, and eighties, you hear them in this order: U two, Thin Lizzy, Boomtown Rats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the the other detail to remember about him from the story and from most of the stories that we had on our show is he was in a long-term relationship with Paula Yates. Oh, yeah. So her relationship with Michael Hutchins from NXS, that's the subject of episode three of the show. Three. And and that that's actually one of the stories that inspired us to do this podcast. When I when people ask me why we came up with the idea and why we started doing it, that is, there were two stories. The very first story we covered 
um, in episode one about um, the Ghostbusters theme song and then the tangle yeah. of Michael Hutchins and Bob Geldof. Those were the two stories that were told on a road trip where I was like, we should make a podcast where we do this. Um, but yeah, it, it, her episode, her uh, relationship with Michael Hutchins uh, was a big deal, but her as an object of desire for people besides Bob Geldof is also part of the story today. Right, right. She was a British TV host. Oh, yeah, we should point out who she is if you have not heard those episodes. She's a British TV personality, and she looked good, she looked hotter than hell. (laughs) And so for us Americans, think like Daisy Fuentes, who's married to Richard Marks, for God's sakes. Um, Who's another good example? Jenny Jenny McCarthy. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that's a good example. Yeah, well, Jenny McCarthy, even though she's just a giant butthole. But anyway, uh, I, that's my personal take. So on I can't that. even though singled out, singled out. That was pretty amazing. I can't find a clear timeline on this story, so I'm not sure when it would have happened. But there's an account, and this is in the show notes of a guy named Richie Taylor wrote. Let me just let me read you a piece of this. Bob Geldof has revealed how his pal Phil Linnett tried to bed his then girlfriend Paula Yates while he was being sick in the bathroom. <laughs> I tell you what, man, that's the hard, that's a that's pretty the hard move. That's the move. Uh, <laughs> you hold my hair, give me a kiss. <laughs> Everything about it's gross. Uh, the, the incident happened while the couple were staying overnight at Thin Lizzy Frontman's London home, and Phil gave Bob a line of heroin. So here it is. Uh, Bob snorted it, thinking it was cocaine, and then got violently ill. Girl, (laughs) you'll be a woman soon. By the way, R.I.P. Blackie Onassis. Just wanted to say. Why didn't I think of that joke? Uh, So, so okay. Just make sure you're following along at home. So the story is indeed that Phil Linnett has this hot couple over. He distracts Bob Geldof by being like, yeah, 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 have this. Sure, it's cocaine. It's heroin. Bob gets really sick. His body can't handle it. He's in the bathroom. And then... Here's what happens. Geldof said, quote, while I was throwing up, he was throwing himself at Paula. She told him to fuck off as I crawled back into bed trembling. That was, and then this is the funniest part of this. That was pretty typical for him, that roguish quality, that glint in his eye. Uh, Quote, you might think you'd be pissed off, but it was so obvious. He was like, oh, yeah, right, man. Sorry about that. Uh, It was so blatant, it was ludicrous. Well, you know, sometimes you have to play that stuff off and not look like a terrible person <laughs> hitting on hitting on hitting on your friend's wife yeah. while you're vomiting. Yeah. Uh it, there are other stories about his behavior like this, not necessarily about, you know, being like here do this line of quote unquote cocaine. Right. Um right. but there there's guys from the band or guys that had played with him will say like, "Oh yeah, he was always trying to get my girl, right? Phil will hit on your girl." That's just basically a thing people knew about him but as you mentioned there are a, a lot of other drug stories about phil yeah there's one about uh cliff richard for sure have we talked about him on the show before oh yeah yeah we we talked about him because he was he is the third top selling artist in uk singles chart history behind the beatles and elvis it's like no and- translation in america like no american knows who that motherfucker is right 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 it's it's bizarre um and that is the thing he's most known for. But the second thing he is most known for is he converted to Christianity. 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're okay. So this makes more sense. The Cliff Richard story is that he is with Phil and Thin Lizzy in Paris, I believe. And they're in the studio. And at some point, you know, these guys are really into doing drugs. And so they call a dealer. <laughs> the dealer shows up and is like cutting up cocaine in front of him. Uh, this is this is from an article. Speaking about the incident, Thin Lizzy guitarist Scott Gorham says, quote, Phil said, come on, let's drag Cliff over here and see what he thinks. <laughs> WWJD? That's not very Christ-like, man. I don't, I mean, I don't know, man. Anyway. WWJD. I don't know. I don't think he'd be in that room. I think he would stay out of that room. There's another famous story where there's a hotel fight in Berlin, because that's where all the good hotel fights are. Like, it's somebody in the band. Um, one of the interesting pieces I found researching this whole story is from the Irish Times, and it features interviews with both Brian Robertson and Scott Gorham. And we've already pointed this out because when we talked about the dueling guitars, these yeah. are the two guys that are quoted, and they their memories conflict. Okay, um, and so in this interview, they ask them both about how heroin becomes such a big part of the band, and so I'll read what Gorman says. And then I've sent you this. Read this account of Robertson's version after I read this. Okay. So. Yeah, you first. This is Gorman. 1979 saw heroin swamp the band. We'd always dabbled, but not in the super class A stuff. It wasn't until we got to the Black Rose album and we were in Paris. In the hotel, Phil called me up and says, come down to my room. I have something I want to show you. I had dabbled with heroin in California before I came, so England was saving me. I didn't know anyone who had it or was doing it, and I was really clean, and I felt great about life. I walked into Phil's room. He pulls out a package, opens it up. I see the brown powder, and he says, do you know what this is? I said, yes. He said, have you ever done it before? And I said, yes. And he said, do you want to do some now? And I said, yes. And that was the start of the whole thing, and that was the worst mistake the band ever made. Yeah, snorting cinnamon, probably terrible. So, okay, here's what Robertson says. So he disputes everything that you just said. First, he says that Phil's hepatitis in 1976 was from a dirty needle. Okay, so side note there real quickly. So the hepatitis thing is only important to to bring back up for a second because I mentioned that they torch their American relationships, and the Mm -hmm. hepatitis is the first thing. Because So 76 is when Jailbreak comes out, they come over to the U.S., they're doing this tour, and he gets hepatitis and goes home. So they cancel part of the tour. It pisses people off. Yeah, And then Gary Moore, word was in the band and he left in 78 due to his disgust of the heroin fug around the band. So Robertson says heroin had been present in Thin Lizzy throughout the years as a quartet. They kept it low key, but the management knew. And and, I mean, heroin is what gets blamed for this band falling apart. There's quite a few pieces in the show notes to consult on this, but basically they just can't keep themselves together. There are hiatuses that different members have to take for exhaustion. There's a tour in Japan where they can't find any heroin. And so everything sort of falls apart. Uh, They break up in 83 and Phil tries to put a new band together right after that, but no record label is going to take a risk on him because you know, it's a small town and people are like, wait, we watched what's happened with Thin Lizzy and we know how bad the drug habits have gotten. And so on Christmas of 85, Phil collapses and his ex-wife gets him to a hospital and after 10 days, he dies from internal abscesses, pneumonia and septicemia brought on by 
being dependent on drugs. I mean, basically his organ shut down. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those situations with one of those amazing talented artists that just got snuffed out because they were addicted to drugs. Yeah. I mean, and, and he's just, there's, there's demons, right? And, and what exactly are those demons? You know, that's up for speculation. I mean, the guy has been dead for 40 years almost. Um, but Far Out Magazine does a piece. It's in the show notes, and it's good. Mm-hmm. Um, and it traces back over his life and sort of points towards this, you know, this invasive loneliness that that followed him around. And they make a strong argument that that's what drives him to sort of always looking, always looking for this escape. You know, I mean, and you can read the more tabloidy versions of his life, and there's, you know, oh, is he lived with his grandparents because his dad abandoned him and his mom couldn't take care of him. And he had always, you know, there were all of these childhood issues and all this baggage that he carried around. And he, you know, I read something that said that when he was a teenager, he got a girl pregnant and they ended up having the baby taken away from them and put up for adoption. So, I mean, definitely from a 2023 lens, there's a lot of trauma following this guy around, but as the drugs get worse and, you know, and as he is, this unicorn of a performer in the both the way he looks and the way he performs and the way he sings and he's getting all these accolades and people are making things available to him and he's you know trying to fill this emptiness or whatever it is that is following him around um the drugs take hold you know and there he he will lose the band as we've already mentioned and then as he loses the band he loses his family he has been he has a couple kids at this point that get taken away from him and one of the saddest things i read about the last few days of his life were that he actually, I think it's on Christmas when he collapses and he has gone to hang out with his kids. And I, I read a version of the story that said he collapsed while with them. Um, and that's why his ex-wife is the one that has to take him in. So, you know, I mean, we laugh about funny drug stories or whatever, but you know, to see this at the end of the road um, is heartbreaking because, uh, you know, I mean, imagine a, you know, Phil is not that old. It wouldn't be that old now. Uh, yeah, but but you have to talk about the interview on Good Morning Britain with when he talks about heroin. Which I is mean, the craziest. Thing. So this is this is maybe this is the end sort of, and this is the the thing that has has stuck around to as this artifact of what happens to him. And if you've not seen this, it's a little hard to watch. Um, yeah, but it, it is. We'll put links in the show notes. Um, I mean, basically, he's very calm, right? So he goes on Good Morning Britain in October of '84, and this is a this is like Good Morning America, right? Yeah. So imagine that. Now, this is when he's got this new band that he has started after Thin Lizzy. They they can't get a record deal, but they're called Grand Slam, and he is up all night. Um, so he he goes from the venue or whatever. Maybe they were doing drugs, probably, and then he goes to this this appearance that he has to do on national TV. And he will admit, he will say that he's a, a quote, a quote, a little delicate um, when he joins Ann Diamond and Mike Morris in this London studio. But everybody's expecting to see the version of Phil Lennett that they'd seen for the last 10 to 15 years where he's cheeky and charming. And again, got just this exudes this rock star charisma, right? And the way he looks and the way he dresses and the way he talks. And, you know, the crazy thing about it is he dies at 36. Yeah. 36. So this is when he's 35. And he 
basically just sort of mellow and worn down, he starts, they, they start talking about drug use. It's a group discussion that's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, the host Morris is asking Lennon, because it's pretty, people know this at this point. You know, they, they, I think they sort of know this is what happened to the band, and they know that he's, he's had this drug issue. And he asks him something about, you know, addiction. First of all, I don't, I don't particularly think that I was an addict mm. as such. I messed around with it enough, and I know enough addicts. Second of all, I don't think the battle is over. The battle never actually ends mm. with the drug. The, the frightening thing about heroin is that, and w- again, without trying to glamorize the drug at all, is that it is very enjoyable to take. It's very enjoyable. Which, which is the opposite thing that an addict who is sincere about trying to have a real message about it would say, there's a law of diminishing returns. Right. It's like you do it and then you never get high again as much as you did the first time. Right. And so you're always chasing that dragon. Right. Which is that way for a lot of drugs, really. Yeah. And it's seen that this is a man who is, it maybe is not going to come back from this. That happens in October of 84. He dies in 86. So so just whatever that is, 14 months later, they will show that clip two days after he dies. Um, and it, obviously at that point, I think people see the significance of it. Like, is there a particular performance uh, or a YouTube clip of Thin Lizzy that you go to? You know, not as much. No, I just I listen to the I listen to the records a lot, and I have like a mix, and I just listen to it. That's yeah. what I do. Yeah. What's your, what's your uh, what's your Thin Lizzy deep cut? Is it Don't Believe a Word? Is that the name uh, of that song? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I like so. off of Vagabonds of the Western World. Um, do you know Little Girl in Bloom? Not no. That's a record I'm not as familiar with for sure. It's got killer album art. It's like cartoon styled album art of the band members. And I need it on a t-shirt. That's all I'm saying. So there we go. We answered the question. If you've got a question about a band you love, um, a song you love, an artist maybe you don't love, and you need us to dig up some dirt on them, we're good at it. Uh, It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com to get in touch with us like Brad did. And there's a lot of ways you can get in touch with the show. I mean, I'm not joking. If you want to support us on Patreon so we can start a Phil Linnett giant painting fund for the studio, that'd be awesome. Um but even if we don't use the money for that, we, we'd really appreciate the extra support. Uh, $5, $10 a month gets you extra content. A couple extra episodes of Murdoch and I, John, um, uh, plus, you know, who knows what we'll upload there. We put videos and outtakes and all sorts of stuff. It's already happened. I um, mean, you get access to everything in the back catalog once you sign up. So if you sign up today, you can grab everything from the last few months and catch up on our top five uh, countdowns and the different things that we do for the Patreon. Uh, also, Louder Than Life is coming up. It's in September tons of your favorite bands if you listen to the show i am pretty sure you're going to want to go to this festival it's that big and that ginormous foo fighters queens of the stone age pantera the list goes on and on um and you can find out how to uh win your tickets when you just click the link in the show notes and apparently the largest metal festival in the united states it's is real big. what we have tickets for it's yeah. real big uh and, you know, I will also tell you, if you're like, that music's a little heavy for me, I'm more into Blondie and Duran Duran, I can't 
fully give away the details, but we've got a chance for you to win tickets to something that's going to be a little more up your alley uh, pretty soon. So keep listening for that as well. And uh, let's see, what what else? What what should people keep doing, Murdoch, um, until next time? Keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.